This is Sandeep Pawar from Chicago, and this WBEZ podcast is made possible with the support of listeners like me. Who's the? What is going to be? When? Where? Where do I? Why is it called? How many? Besides the most? How many people? I was wondering. When are we going to get our? What? You're listening to the Curious City podcast from WBEZ Chicago. You ask the questions, we answer them together. We get a lot of questions about food, and one of the better ones came from Rachel Kumura from Chicago's Avondale neighborhood. She wanted to know about the history of old diners in the Chicago area. So we went out to five of them, all the way from northwest Indiana to southeast Wisconsin, stopping at a few places in Chicago, too. And along the way, we couldn't help but wonder, how did we even get diners in the first place? We needed to know what shaped our diner design, food, and culture. So we talked to the expert. Yeah, I've written four books about diners. The first one came out in 1979 called American Diner. And I wrote a book called The Worcester Lunch Car Company, which is That's Richard Gutman. Diner. That's right, Gutman. Besides being a diner expert, he directs the Culinary Arts Museum in Providence, Rhode Island. Here's his take on a diner definition. The classic or strictest definition of a diner would be a place that's built in a factory. And it has to have a counter. It has to have home-style food. Prices have to be reasonable. You can go in any time no matter what you're wearing, no matter who you are, and get a bite to eat, and that's that. Gutman says factory-built diners answered people's need to eat on the move. And there are actually two simultaneous stories going on here, eating on the road and eating on the rails. The road story begins in the 1870s in Rhode Island. The first diner actually was the 19th century version of a food truck. And that shows you how everything that's new is old. Gutman says that first diner was run by a peddler who started selling food out of a basket. And when he got too popular, he upgraded his business to a push cart. Then a wagon that you could bring prepared foods into. Then a wagon that had a little grill and a coffee urn. You see where this is going. People were keen on convenient, simple, cheap eats, and demand grew. So much so that companies started manufacturing food wagons. Gutman says in some East Coast towns, wagons clogged the streets and had to be moved to the roadside. And that influenced their design. They grew in popularity. They needed to accommodate more people. And the way to do that was to make them longer. And then they began to look very much like the trolley car, street car, or railroad car. So the food push cart draws one historical thread to diners of today. But Gutman says there's another thread, and Chicago plays a big part. It has to do with train travel. Dining car services began back in 1869. Conscientiously pioneering, the first all-Pullman train appeared. New luxuries and comforts were growing. Chicago-built Pullman trains set a new standard for rail travel, complete with lounge cars, sleeping cars, and dining cars on this, quote, hotel on wheels. Make yourself comfortable. Go into the diner. Have a good dinner. While you're sitting there being served, the wheels will keep on rolling. They'll roll all through the night. These days, dining car history is being reborn. 
humming in the train yard underneath Roosevelt Avenue in Chicago. These cars were the original diners. That's Daniel Trainer. He's the executive chef and manager of commissary and dining car services for the Pullman Sleeping Car Company. Each railroad had their own, whether it was a dish or uh, an item, that they prepared and were known for it. Chef Trainer says rail dining cars contributed to what we consider typical diner fare today. The turkey club was invented on these cars. You know, the, the the loaf of bread that go that a turkey club is built on is called a Pullman loaf because it was made to fit in a specific size Pullman locker. The dining car's home-style, quality food became selling points. And Trainer says all the railroads had their own version of French toast and even put out their own cookbooks. These dining cars, wherever they went, they set the expectation. Uh, they, they really shaped the culture of, of restaurants in America. In 1968, the Pullman Company closed after more than a century in business. But everything old is indeed new again. Trainer says since last year, refurbished Pullman trains have been taking leisure travelers in full Pullman style to New Orleans. The knives, forks. Jason Maycar is the head steward on these new old Pullman rail journeys. And being head steward entails a lot of responsibilities, including keeping silverware polished, glassware polished, and knowing where all the doilies are, which happens to be my nickname of late. Doily, doily, where's the small doily? Makar says one aspect of Pullman's diners that did not make its way into mainstream diner culture was fussiness in presentation. Mr. Pullman himself in the day was very, very, we want to say diplomatically, maybe borderline OCD. Everything had to be separated. So uh, a, a club sandwich will only be put on a plate with some fruit and then maybe a side of pasta salad. Well, that side pasta salad needs to be in its own dish. And then that dish needs a doily. And then that dish needs a liner underneath it. Well, back to the main historical tracks. The fact is, they start to intersect. As the railroad dining car and roadside diner evolved, they ended up copying from each other, both in cuisine and in design. Again, diner expert Richard Gutman. Pullman's dining cars for the rails were ahead of the lunch wagons slightly in terms of their size and and even chronologically. But at the same time, when the lunch wagons evolved into permanent roadside diners, they were copying some of the things that Pullman had already innovated. And just to confuse matters even more, starting around World War I, entrepreneurial types began converting actual decommissioned train cars into roadside diners. So that meant there were diners on trains, roadside diners built to look like trains, and actual train cars converted into roadside diners. But you could get pretty confused on this issue. Got that right, Gutman. These days, though, diners with any real train legacy are hard to find, though there are still a few operating in the Chicago area, including the Diner Grill on Irving Park Road in Chicago's Lakeview neighborhood. Night manager and cook Kenny Coster says it opened in 1937. There's two old train cars. One's in the front, one's in the back. But the train cars are older than 1937. But they were, you know, hauling people around. They weren't for restaurants. And there's also Frank's Diner in Kenosha, which owner Kevin Irvin says looks exactly like a train, but it's a fake-out. Frank's Diner was actually purchased out of a magazine in 1925 from the Mahoney Company, which pretty much offered you a business, and that business was a diner. Shaped like a train car. They could ship it on rails. But our diner expert, Richard Gutman, says we shouldn't get too hung up on questions of diner authenticity. 
the moral of the story is, is you cannot be what I used to call a diner snob and say, this is a diner, this is not a diner, because uh, why do that? It kind of takes the joy and fun out of, uh, out of eating in a great place. Okay, one last thing. You should definitely check out this neato interactive doodad thing that we made online about diners. And it's so interactive, you can smell the sizzle. It's over at wbez.org slash Curious City. Thanks for listening. Curious City is produced by WBEZ Chicago Public Media, Ziga, and AIR, the Association of Independence in Radio. Our senior producer is Jennifer Brandel. Sean Ali edits the series, and Logan Jaffe is our multimedia producer. The Curious City podcast is mixed by Sarah Liu with help from Mickey Capper. You can subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or listen to our back catalog in SoundCloud. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at WBEZ Curious City. Lead financial support for Curious City comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org slash curious. Thank you.